Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Good evening, everybody. Happy New Year. It's 2024, and I'm still Ali Milani, and this is still Politics Uncensored, and we're still looking back at the best bits from 2023. It's a brand new year, and we have an exciting uh, cohort of, of guests to look forward to in 2024. But before we get to all of those amazing guests and those amazing episodes that we've got lined up for you, let's look back one last time to the my favorite interviews from 2023. First, I got a chance to sit down with the former leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, about his new poetry anthology, Poetry for the Many. We spoke about his early career in politics, being elected leader of the Labour Party in 2015, his opinions on Sir Keir Starmer, and we might have even had a conversation about poems and jams. Do give a listen. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. First of all, how are you? Very, very well, thank you, as you see me. Yes, well, I was going to say, I was going to start this. If it was anyone else, I'd be starting this with, you know, post-leadership years. You must be having a lot of time off and relaxing, but it seems like your schedule is just as busy as it was when you were leader of the party. I'm shocked at the question, actually. (laughs) (laughs) No, my whole life has always been very occupied and very busy, and now is no different to any other time. Yeah, and so you're 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 still at the front line fighting yeah, the good I'm fights. Obviously, the MP for my area and mm-hmm. uh, takes up a lot of time anyway. Um, doing a lot of stuff in Parliament, a lot of campaigning work, and uh, building up the Peace and Justice Project, which is going extremely well. Mm. And um, working on a book I'm writing myself, which is going well. Yeah, uh, we're nearly at the uh, editing final editing stage. And this book we just produced, Poetry. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the poetry book. I actually didn't know that you were writing another book. Is that a memoir or...? It's a, No, not exactly. It started out as an analysis of the five years of leadership mm-hmm. of the Labour Party. But um, somebody pointed out to me you couldn't really talk about that without putting it in the context of the political events that went before and of your own life. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I then started writing a chapter about my own political activities. And uh, after this chapter got into the several tens of thousands of words, um, somebody suggested you make yeah. it into several chapters. You probably then, <laughs> once you're in the tens of thousands so, of words, well, yeah. I don't really think most chapters should go beyond about 5,000 words. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, the book is going extremely well, fascinating to do. And it will give, um, if you like, a balanced, I hope, view of a lot of things and my side of the story. Yeah, so I I want I do kind of want to look back a little bit and then look as a result look forward because sure. I think you have one of the most interesting stories um in British political world certainly of my lifetime. Um and so I want to kind of look back at your time as an MP as leader of the party and then that's probably informed the book that you've written but also the themes of the poetry book which we're going to talk about as well which was brilliant and I read. Uh, start. Can you give me a little bit of your sense of your history in Islington North? I know how important your constituency is to you. I think that's one of the key things, even throughout your leadership years, um, and from everybody that I speak to in your area, because I'm not I'm not that far from it. Mm. Um, how did the story in Islington North start for you, councillor, activist? Um, I didn't set out in life to become a member of Parliament. It wasn't my sort of life's ambition. I was obviously active in the Labour Party. I was a councillor. I was a union organiser, and I'd done lots and lots of jobs. Um, and um, then, when uh, the previous MP for Islington North, a gentleman called Michael O'Halloran, was um, left the Labour Party and joined the SDP, and then um, uh, the party then had to select a candidate. They, a group of comrades, approached me and said, "Would have put my name forward." I thought about it and thought about it and said, all right. And then we had the longest selection process <laughs> ever. We had um, six months. Six months selection process? Yes. Jesus. Selection. in September 81. Um, at the time, Tony Benn was challenging <laughs> for deputy leadership of the party, and I was obviously very involved in his campaign, and it finished in... Uh, March 82. It's like a Premier League season. (laughs) Why was it so long? Well, they um, wanted to make sure everybody had a say and everybody duly did have a say. Was there a lot of candidates? Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of candidates. And um, eventually, it was done by a general management committee delegate voting. 
and eventually I got it by 39 votes to 35 on the sixth ballot. On the sixth Did you think you were going to win when you put your name forward? No. No? No, you, you can't go into something like that assuming you're going to win. If you do, you certainly lose. Yeah. No, I said, look, I just said, look, this is me. Here I am. This is what I think about. Yeah, because when I, when I did it in Uxbridge under your leadership, yeah. um, I, the way I was convinced to do it was, you run and just put the ideas on the on the table, and then the eventual winner will take it on. Some, I think, to yeah. your to your leadership bits, and it was the same for you. Then you yeah. were just putting the ideas. So I forward. put the ideas. Then talked. I was a councillor in the neighbouring borough, so I obviously had some knowledge of well, quite a lot of knowledge of the area, and um, mm -hmm. I found it interesting doing these discussions and debates. And the number of points that I brought out for it was that the MP has to be rooted in the community. They have to be involved in the community and they have to try and represent it. But above all, they mustn't ever go away from the community, mm -hmm. which is why uh, during the time, during all of the time, my office, the only time I ever get irritated with my office is if they take time away from the constituency. Mm -hmm. And when I was leader of the party, we had this golden rule that um, at least one full day a week would be in Islington North. And mm -hmm. they said, can't do that. So I said, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. This this is a rule that will not. But be, you know, it's, it's this is a rule yeah, that will not be broken. It's not. I think that the reason that that's important. It's not just that you know it let, lets you it allows you to stay connected to the community from an electoral perspective, but it keeps your ear to the ground. You get to hear from real people, right? Also, people I've known for a very long time. Yeah, and these are you know people in different communities, jobs, industries, businesses, all that. Yeah. I know them all very very well. Yeah. And they will tell me what they think. And, and I trust their opinions. And that difference is really interesting. I remember, um, and again, just one of my personal stories, I did um, one of the Sunday programs. Yeah. When my campaign kicked off, I went on the Sunday program and I bombed. I was terrible, right? Mm -hmm. And I had a canvassing session straight after. And I drove back and I was in sweats. I thought I'd ruin everything. I thought I'd screwed you up and, and, and um, you were going to get shit because of my performance. And then I started knocking on doors and realized, no one watched it, <laughs> right? They they had far too much in their own lives going on from like feeding the kids and affording yeah. uniforms and things like that to pay attention to Westminster. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, you've had such a long and and uh, you've been through different eras in po British politics. That Westminster bubble, you got to tell me what that's like when you, because well, it's, it's not real life. It's kind of unreal. I, I remember <laughs> very early on, I'd been elected about couple of months or so so this would have been summer 83 I went to a meeting of a tenants association in July and the association meeting started about 7 seven thirty, and it went on a bit and so on it came towards nine o'clock and um, I said to the chair look I'm really sorry I'm gonna have to go now why I said well I've got to go to Parliament because there's a very important vote at 10 o'clock and I think I should be there taking part in that vote. So I really have to go now because I've got to get there. Is that all right? I said, no. I said, well, this, <laughs> this is a bit difficult. But I, mean, I understand you've got some issues you still want to discuss, but we've already been here two hours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, mm. And this woman said, Jeremy, listen, I met you just before the election. And you told me you're going to be for round here. I didn't realize you were also going to get mixed up with Westminster. <laughs> what did you think you were doing? <laughs> right. So, so, so she said, um, well, this time is all right. But, you know, just mm. think. think. <laughs> yeah. I just realized that, um, I mean, it was partly said in joke and jest, but also there is a, a a point that is very easy to become totally absorbed with the yeah. minutiae of Westminster. Yeah. And uh, if you enjoy that yeah. kind of thing, it can be fascinating. Well, if I, you love gossip, but, but the, actually, the it's an unreality. But it's the, pro the, the problem with it is they're so disconnected. Yeah. And, and like, I'll give you an example. I won't mention who because it's unfair. But I spoke to a, the, the, the senior advisor to one of the shadow ministers, front benches. Uh, about the situation going on in Gaza. And I said, you know, do they know the amount of emails and up outrage within the communities? And the advisor told me, no, because we're not showing them the emails. We're keeping it from them, right? So to, to kind of protect them from the, the, the stress and outrage of what's going on. And that led me to think, hang on, this 
person presumably spends most of their time in Westminster, right? Mm -hmm. So isn't actually interacting a whole lot with the community. And then they're not even seeing the emails. So it's so easy to then just get caught in that bubble, isn't it? To just oh, yeah. think that that's, the, that's what everyone else is thinking. The tea rooms of the House of Commons is what everyone else is thinking. And that's where the divide in politics yeah, like comes. The point you were making um, about your canvassing session after the interview, uh, in reality, I'm in Parliament some days and there's like most massive furore about some process or other. Everybody's yak, yak, yakking all the time. And then the rest of the country doesn't care. The outside people, yeah. So what? The bit that they care about is when they go to pay their energy bill, for example, yeah. and they can't afford it, or right? Can't or, get a house or, or can't get a house. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, look, you did go to Westminster in the end, um, and you spent quite a lot of time campaigning on the the issues that you were really passionate about. But eventually, we get to the 2015 leadership election, mm -hmm. and we've had John McDonnell on here, kind of talked us through how that went in the beginning processes, mm -hmm. and from his perspective, what it was like. Mm -hmm. What I'd love to hear from you is, look. Again, kind of like when you ran for MP, you didn't think you were going to win that leadership, did you? Well, no, we put my name forward because I was very determined that we put up a challenge. I have to say, many of my colleagues, close colleagues in the socialist campaign group said it's a waste of time, there's no point in doing it. Yeah. We even had a meeting of various left groups in um, Camden one night. It was probably organized by Labour Representation Committee and a whole lot of groups there. And they sort of, oh, no. A waste of time. We'll never get it. We'll, we'll never get, get it. We won't even get on the ballot. What's yeah. the point? We should concentrate on doing policy. And I got quite annoyed. I said, look, guys, if you miss this opportunity to stake your claim to a different form of politics, to stand up against the austerity economics and all this, then forget it on policy in the future because you've lost the chance to raise it mm -hmm. at the time when party members are most engaged. And they didn't really agree with me. Yeah. Um, and this was like about two weeks before the whole thing kicked off. I then went away to the USA for a week uh, on Guantanamo Bay. We were lobbying uh, the Senate and the House. And I went to New York for the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So I was away for about a week. And I came back, and they're still having the same discussion. And I, so I said, look, if you don't put up, you can't complain. And mm -hmm. It's not about me, it's about whoever you decide to put up. So eventually we get to a meeting of the campaign group of MPs, which wasn't very big, and they um, go around the table and say, well, okay, we, I, I made the same speech, and somebody's got to do it. So they all said, okay, John, Mac, you do it. You did it last time. He said, nope, done all that. I'm not doing that again. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we then get to look around at Diane, Abbott. Yeah, she'd done it before. She said, I've done that before. <laughs> I'm not doing it again, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. She said, Which is a good endorsement for you. She said, it's hell doing it. And so there was then a silence, and I bent over and wrote some of my notebook. I kind of inveterate note taker. And I look up, and they're all pointed at me. <laughs> you realize you're the last I man said, left in the room. I said, what's the matter with you guys? They said, um, well, since you're the one who talked us into this, you better do it. Mm. So, all right. <laughs> and at that point, Diane's hand shot across the table and she pressed something. I said, what was that? She said, I'm just sending out a tweet saying you're running. Oh, Christ. <laughs> so really nailing you to that so decision. Yeah. No escape from that point onwards. Yeah. And, and, and well, I, we had no organization. We had no money. We didn't have yeah. anything. We just had my credit card and that didn't last. Yeah. Long. <laughs> um, we... we um, just went out there and said, yeah. okay, this is to direct the party away from austerity economics into a different form of politics. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we had the Nuneaton debate almost straight away. That was a Newsnight yeah. early evening Nuneaton debate uh, with the other candidates. And things began to change very quickly. At what point did you realize we might win this thing? Um, was there a moment where you were like... Yeah, there, there was. Um, to begin with, um, I remember talking privately to John and others. I said, well, how do you think we're going to do? And they were sort of saying, oh, 20, 25%. And I said, it might be better than that, maybe 30. Mm -hmm. you know? um, when it began to change was that we'd done a lot of these... We'd started doing the regional hustings, and they'd gone very well. And we organized a public meeting straight after the uh, East Midlands hostings in Nottingham at the Arts Centre. And it was absolutely ram-packed. 
half an hour before it was due to begin. And so I thought, sign of something. Yeah. And um, then um, we the hustings got bigger and bigger, and um, and you were running was a beginning to grow. You right? were running a kind of different campaign, I remember, because yeah. traditionally, I think what the leadership campaigns they do lots of media and they do the hustings, yeah. but you did a lot of community-based events. Right? You did, pack out rooms and speak directly to the I members. I did public meetings all over the place. There was never a restriction on attendance. Yeah, and we did a lot of open air rallies as well because it was summertime. Yeah. It was easier to do that. Um, and so that changed the atmosphere. When it fundamentally changed was we were in South Wales doing events then. I'd done um, South Wales, um, uh, I'd done Welsh Radio that morning, Sunday morning. And then I was going back to the station in Cardiff and uh, I got a call um, from Unite to say the Unite executive is now nominating you. Right, and that yeah. Was, that, that was, was big, a yeah. Very important moment. Mm. Unite were then formally backing me. Other unions already said they would, like Aslak yeah. and so on, but Unite came on, came on board at that stage. Um, I was still not convinced we were going to win. I was the last person to be convinced we had a chance of winning, right, and yeah. that was in probably the middle of August. But I, what I said was, um, don't imagine we're going to win. The campaign has got to go on. Yeah. And we had all these uh, phone banking sessions. We probably had the... Um, Biggest phone bank ever. I think we had six hundred people on a phone yeah. bank one day, and that sort of thing. So we did a big campaign and mobilized a lot of people. Yeah. And, but you know the result. It was amazing. So I, I'm. This is. I've always been curious about this. You win the election mm. that night. You go home. Put the key in the door. Open. Mm. Sit on the couch. Mm. What are you feeling? Well, um, we went first of all to uh, Troy Restaurant at um, South Bank, and that. Uh, John was there and a lot of other people. I wanted just to say thank you to the team for mm. everything they'd done. Um, and uh, we were like, and then I got home and thought, oh, wow. And then the next day, there was the, the first of. Um, but what are you feeling when you're at home? Are you, is I'm there feeling, a little bit of fear? Is there a little bit of the proud? Yeah. We had made. Um, very humble to have been, had this thing. This yeah. trust place because it wasn't me. it wasn't a small vo- vo- margin of victory either. It was quite no, a big margin of victory. It was overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then I was just sort of started to think of all the issues we're going to face and all the problems we would get and the difficulties, but also the opportunity, mm-hmm. the opportunity to develop our political system in a much more open way and open up, particularly for. Uh, marginalized communities fundamentally it's one for everybody yeah. then the next argument was about um, the following morning because I was told by the Labour Party head office that the tradition was the newly elected leader went to do Andrew Marr the next morning All right. and I said well so what and they said well you've got to do it I said no I've already booked to do a um, mental health day event with the Camden Islington um, mental health group Mm. And to talk about mental health. Yeah. So I'll do that. And immediately after, you went to the refugee before, event. Yeah. Immediately after I was elected, um, I, I said, "Well, I'm going. I'm going to start as I'm yeah. going to go on. I'm going to speak at the refugees a welcome rally. Yeah. In Parliament Square, which I did. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, a lot of my team didn't want me to do that because they said it's um, difficult security-wise mm. and crowds and things. But you know, have you ever so been concerned I, I said, about? I'm going to do it. Have you ever been concerned about your security? Not really, no. I mean, you you can't go around always being worried about your own mm. consu- uh, security because if you do, you end up never going yeah. anywhere. And not but I imagine your family have always been concerned about yeah, that. Right? My yeah, my loved ones and family and my wife, Lara, and the, my sons are continually worried yeah. about this. And we have had... Um, I can imagine. We've yeah. had some very unpleasant incidents. But, but not, I think... But, but, you know, 90% of it is the opposite. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine 90% of it would be... Yeah. Positive, right? And what are those? Safest place I feel is Islington. Islington North, North, right? So I want to kind of look back on your leadership years. I I totally reject this idea that because we didn't win in 2019, that nothing was achieved in in the five years of leadership. Um, And I'll give you a few examples as to what I think. Even if you think away from policy, I mean, there were lots of things that you got the government to U-turn on. Um, I also think it's worth bearing in mind. A lot of people don't know that the even during COVID, the uh, the scheme where people got paid, it's gone out of my head now, uh, the, yeah. the name of it, was actually a policy idea that came that from came us. Yeah. from, from well, us. Yeah, uh, that's, that's fair. thank you. That's yeah. ab- absolutely right. Um, well, we achieved some significant policy changes. We opened up a whole 
debate about um, austerity economics and, and so on, and the idea that austerity economics has got to lower living standards rather than redistribute power and wealth. And actually, the Financial Times conceded that. Mm -hmm. They said, thanks to the efforts of Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn to challenge yeah. austerity economics, things have changed. Yeah. It's no and longer that easy But agenda. that's so important because I think, I remember when Ed was leader, and we gave up the space, and I'm not having to go at Ed, but I think the whole party did this. We gave up the austerity space. Yeah. Because we weren't anti-austerity, we moved the norm in, in our political space yeah. where it became almost impossible for people to yeah. argue against austerity. The 2015 election, yeah. both parties were committed to a wage freeze yeah. in the public sector. Yeah. Uh, look, I think if we'd adopted an anti-austerity position, um, we would have won that 2015 election. Yeah. And if, honestly... I think Ed would admit that in his heart as well. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting, my perspective, and it is just entirely my perspective, I think once Ed saw your leadership, he felt like maybe he was a little bit too chained to the status quo when he was leader and he wished he could have yeah. uh, gone further. But I want you to look back. So the five years, what are some of the proudest achievements? Proudest uh, issues, Iraq war apology. Yeah. Green New Deal policies, getting parliament to agree um, on a climate emergency being declared by Britain, the public ownership debate, which is now everybody's in favour of public ownership mm -hmm. of rail, mail, water um, and energy, um, being prepared to stand up uh, to issues on foreign policy where we don't go in militarily, instead we go in with a, an agenda for peace and for change. But above all, of mobilizing an awful lot of people to become mm -hmm. involved in politics. I've just come from SOAS. Yeah. I was doing a, a reading of um, law about um, conflict, conflict war, you know, war, rules of war, reading them out. Hundreds and hundreds of students there. So many of them said, I only got involved in politics during your time's leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so on that, on the mobilization, I want to show you something. Can we throw... So for those who aren't watching, we're watching you at Glastonbury mm -hmm. giving the speech in front of what looks like to me like hundreds of thousands of people. Headphones on, but I'll play this now for you. Is it on these headphones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to put that up? What is that like? It was quite extraordinary. Um... That that is unprecedented in British politics. We're not our politics just isn't like that, right? It's not America where you get these massive rallies where thousands of people show up. But here you've got hundreds of thousands of people who most of them, let's be honest, wouldn't have had politics as one of their top issues that they're interested in in their life, even though we know politics affects all of us. And there you are stood with hundreds of thousands of people at Glastonbury singing oh Jeremy Corbyn. It was an amazing experience, and I was very pleased we did it. Um, we wrote, the office got very excited about Glastonbury. Every single person in the office thought it was necessary for them to be at Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they did. Yeah. <laughs> Every single one said yeah. it's really necessary yeah. for me to yeah. come. Jeremy, so, just for your security, I have to come. <laughs> yeah. So we spent a lot of time in discussion with Michael Eugas yeah. um, about how many tickets we yeah. could have. <laughs> he, he was very generous, yeah. to be fair. But did you think at that point, I could win a general election? Well, I thought, my God, we've we've got this, having not won a general yeah. election, which is one of the reasons I pushed really yeah. hard for an early poll. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was really yeah. exciting. And, but you and, know what? Six months later, maybe less than six months later, I was at Glastonbury again because Michael invited me to go there to um, open the social housing units that he'd built with the profits of Glastonbury. Mm -hmm. Well done him. Yeah. So I went to open them and meet the new tenants and residents. And then we went to the field. Yeah. It was empty. The pyramid <laughs> stage had gone, except for like the skeleton of it. Right. And the sheep were there. Right. So I stood there in the middle of the field amongst the sheep looking at the stage. Yeah, which knowing you as well, you empty. love nature, so why I not? Yeah. And you could yeah. see Glastonbury Tour. And I remember being taken to Glastonbury Tour as a kid by my mum and dad yeah. because we lived in Wiltshire. Yeah. And um, so obviously at that point, I think you think we got a chance at least yeah. at yeah. a general election. Um, this mobilization, I think, is really, really important yeah. because often I think our politics is obsessed with the Westminster game. But one of the things that your leadership did, certainly, without a Jeremy Corbyn leadership, and I don't want to focus on you just as an individual. Obviously, you were the leadership, but you were the leader of a movement, right? Mm -hmm. Without Jeremy Corbyn, I don't think Zara Sultana MP happens. I don't think 
um, for example, Absana Begum happens. Mm. There are so many journalists that I know that mm. kind of got inspired into politics that have gone into journalism. And for sure, I can tell you for sure, Ali Milani isn't sat in the studio interviewing now. Is that something that you can look on proudly yeah. to say, look, this, I inspired these people to get into politics? I look very proudly on the way we managed to excite and mobilize so many people. What I always felt was that we were a distance away from the movement we'd created. Mm -hmm. And I wrote in my diary the um, weekend I was elected and I'd spent the whole weekend in arguments with people in the Parliamentary Labour Party about appointments and so on and uh, sort of realised the problems that was going to be thrown at me. And I felt we're in danger of being so high up the beach, we're too mm -hmm. far away from the crowd at the south, at the bottom yeah. of it. And all the time, my leadership, there was this problem of the um, traditions, attitudes of yeah. the bureaucracy of the Labour Party, which were pretty hostile to me, gave me a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. And um, the Parliamentary Labour Party, which um, was very hostile to me from the very beginning. And it was only after the um, 2017 election, that was two years later, uh, things became a bit better yeah. because more people have been yeah. elected as Labour MPs so who were sympathetic. I want to ask you this, and oh, we'll move on on this. Regrets. Looking back, um, I mean, it's so easy in hindsight to look back and go, I would have done this, this, and this We different. underestimated the opposition within the Labour Party. I had um, a belief that all those that worked for the Labour Party would support what we were trying to do. They didn't. They undermined and they tried to weaken it. And um, dealing with the mainstream media is never easy. We underestimated the malevolence and the hostility of um, the right-wing mm. press in Britain. I mean, and at one point, uh, the Daily Mail ran like a 15-page spread or something like that. Daily Mail, the Daily yeah. Express, um, all of them ran terrible stuff on me day in, day out, and my house was under siege. What was Sometimes that like? Lara couldn't go out at all. What was that like? Horrible. Yeah. Because you, you wake up in the morning, most people wake up on a summer's morning hoping to hear a dawn chorus. What do I hear? Yeah. Chattering photographers outside who then jostle has, uh, and harass. Yeah. But also, like, you, mentioned, you mentioned your, your wife. Your family often, and I know this because I got maybe 0.5% of it when I ran mm. against Boris, your family end up paying the price for it, don't they? Absolutely, and it meant that Laura, who is um, very political, very active, very knowledgeable, um, got either belittled or abused or attacked and so on, and she's actually a very significant mm. person in her own right, nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's um, a Mexican woman, very interested in Mexico and so on. And uh, obviously, she got a lot of attacks, as did my sons. Yeah. Um, and everyone. I think uh, and, people forget often. I think the media forget. Them, I mean, in a sense, I, I can take it because it's me. I chose yeah. to do this. They didn't. And the horrors they got. The other yeah. thing is, one should be very careful of the insidious language that's used by the media you think you're friends. Mm -hmm. Now, I wrongly, completely wrongly, assumed that liberal papers, so-called, like The Guardian, would be, I'm not asking for endorsement, I'm not asking for support, at least give us a fair hearing. They didn't. You didn't feel like they gave you a fair no, hearing? No. Not Did anyone give you a fair hearing? Well, under uh, academic analysis show that only 90% of the media reporting was hostile. <laughs> only that. You got 10%. Well, no, some of them okay. were neutral. All right, I'm going to ask you this question. Be honest with me, okay? Of course. Looking back... I put you in a time machine, take you back to that room where John said, I'm not doing it. Diane said, I'm not doing it. And you make that decision again. Would you run again? Yes. 100%. 100%. You said that without even... Without a blink, without a delay, without hesitation. This is like uh, just a minute, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, 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 well, that, that, that tells me exactly where you are. And um, I, so I have to ask you a little bit about Keir. I hope you don't mind. Because he served in your shadow cabinet. What was it like with him at, at the time? Did you have a relationship with him? Um we appointed him as a shadow um, Brexit secretary um, after the referendum. Uh, I knew what his views were on Brexit, obviously, um, and I, I felt that we were having, going to navigate a difficult path. And I also appointed people to join in the negotiating team with the government who had an opposite point of view to him, John Trickett and uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, for example. Um, 
how should I put it, I never felt very close to Keir. He was efficient at um, analyzing the legislation and very quick at that. Um, but was he particularly involved in everything else and every other political discussion? No, didn't mm -hmm. show much interest in all the other issues we're dealing with. Never spoke when we were discussing housing, environment, or anything else. Uh, was, mm -hmm. he, was he close? No. Did you feel like um, you know he just had an interest in his own brief and nothing else? Well, I asked him to do that brief. Um, we went to Brussels together a couple of times, and we had um, lengthy discussions with Michel Barnier. I felt that we were in quite a good place when I proposed a customs union as a way forward, a sort of a leave EU, have customs union alternative, which would mm -hmm. have meant you basically there wouldn't be the disruption of trade. Um, he apparently went along with that and supported that and indeed was there at the Coventry speech when I uh, proposed that yeah um but do you do you regret he's, he's a very yeah. different person now than he was then oh really? okay so it's it's yeah. very very different now yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, even on a personal level i assume you guys don't talk now well he hasn't but... spoken to me for two years or... yeah um <clears throat> i have a question just on that brexit policy do you regret the the position we ended up with in 2019 because I, I tell you what i supported it i thought it was I the right move at the time it was i now think you know i was wrong at the time well I, I think we should have stuck to our guns. Complicated but... problem to deal with, which um, ended up on my lap. The problem is, um, Labour supporters around the country support Labour because they want to see a political change. They want to see social justice. People in my constituency on housing benefit, universal credit, are hard up. Most of them voted Remain. Mm. People in um, Easington, in the northeast, on housing benefit, in exactly the same situation probably voted leave. Mm -hmm. Their unity ought to be about progress towards social justice. Yeah. So I tried to bring people together on this. And that, that bothered me, I remember, because I was in a leave seat. Yeah. And the narrative was, well, everyone who voted leave was a bunch of racists, right? Which they're who, not. Which they're not. Yeah. But we weren't allowed to say that because yeah. the liberal media would hammer you if, yeah. you if you said, no, well, they had genuine economic angst and maybe they chose the wrong area to put it in, but they it had was economic genuine. Angst. And I remember I was in Cornwall uh, campaigning for a yes vote in in the referendum, the uh, Remain and Reform agenda that we put forward. I remember having a discussion with people in Cornwall. Now, Cornwall had a lot of objective one money from the EU, but is a poor county. No mm -hmm. question about that. Wages are very low. Jobs are very insecure. And the whole place gets swamped and by property developers buying up second homes and leaving them empty most of the time. Mm -hmm. So it's um, there's a lot of unhappiness in Cornwall. And I remember talking to a bunch of people in Truro and other places, and they were all going to vote leave. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, why? He said, there's nothing in it for us. And um, I got the same in other places. I felt that, in a sense, it was a vote, yes, for a different way of doing things, but it was a vote of anger against mm -hmm. communities that had been left behind. Yeah, yeah. And um, obviously, I think Keir spearheaded uh, the second referendum. And I remember this conference speech where he said, you know, Remain would very much be uh, on the table. Um, and I think, yeah. I'll be honest with you, I think that was the moment we lost the election in 2019. Because yeah. even when I was door knocking, there's nothing that I could say that broke through that Brexit barrier. Yeah, um, we, and we obviously tried to run the election yeah. campaign on health, social justice, and yeah. all the other issues. I mean, I even, I, I laid down in front of a bulldozer to try and get people, yeah. but it well, was see, just Brexit. My constituency voted 80% remain yeah. in, the, in the referendum. Yeah. Uh, and um, they were concerned. Yeah, there, nobody was happy. Did we make the right call? Uh -huh. We made the call that seemed to me a way of bringing the party together. And I have to say, on the eve of the 2019 conference, there was a meeting of... Tulo, trade unions and labor organization. All the unions were there that were affiliated to the party, some of whom had been remained, some of whom had been leave. Mm -hmm. Unanimous support for that decision. Yeah, yeah. Okay, last last question on, on care, I promise, because I want to get to the book now. Mm. Um, it's looking likely that he might be the next prime minister. Um, you, you worked with him, at least, I mean, you didn't have a personal relationship, a particular personal relationship, but you worked with him. If an alien was to come to earth and you had to, Describe Keir in one or two words to them. What words would you use? 
I would say he's um, somebody that um, is very determined to hold on to his position, exercises power in a very personal and quite ruthless way at times, and um, sees what he believes the right form of winning an election to be an end in itself rather than a means to mm -hmm. an end. And I get um, concerned about that and concerned about the undermining of democracy in the party and some of the rule changes that he's pushed through. One, for example, which uh, is astonishing, which says the rules of natural justice do not apply to the Labour Party rulebook. Yeah, um, I mean, I've 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 been on the receiving end of some of those you rule changes. Out there. Of a lack of natural justice. <laughs> yeah. I want to get to and the book. And natural justice yeah. on me has been rather limited as well. Yeah, I do. I, so I want to get to the book because yep. that's the reason we're here. Yep. So uh, you've written a book, uh, or you've you've put together a book with Len McCluskey, poetry for the many. Tell us a little bit about how this came together. Well, Len and I were having a chat in my office one time about economic strategy and we get on very well so we had a long chat we, there wasn't really much <coughs> debate we were fundamentally in agreement then Len sort of stretches back like this looks around and sees my bookcase he said why, why <laughs> have you got all these poetry books in your bookcase I said well I like poetry he, he said I haven't got that one can I borrow it <laughs> yeah sure, be my <laughs> guest um, and so Len often quotes particularly Emily Dickinson and um, he was very interested as to why I quoted from Ben Ockrey in my conference speech in 2015 mm. just after I've been elected and I said well I think there's a poet in all of us and poetry inspires and excites and too many young people continue writing poetry after leaving primary school mm. that are embarrassed to say so yeah and so um, we then talked about this quite a lot and then I said, look, why don't we try with Melissa Benn, because she's ideal for this, to do a poetry evening in Liverpool at the Casa. I said, okay. So we had an evening at the Casa. We booked it. The Casa's a club in Hope Street in Liverpool. Absolutely packed out to the rafters. You couldn't, we could hardly get in ourselves. <laughs> right. When I, I thought this yeah. thing was going to be a bit of a... Well, you would think you know, so with poetry. Yeah, yeah, because no, because as you as you write in your we introduction, there, did it? yeah. It was fantastic. Then, well, I think what's interesting about the book in your introduction, you yeah. write about how sometimes poetry is kind of looked down upon, or people are embarrassed, yeah, yeah. and there are poets in all of us, but people are embarrassed to bring it out. Yeah, well, that's right. There's a poet in everybody. So we did the event in the Casa. That was really good. Then Colin Robinson from All Books was there, who's an old friend, and he's from Liverpool as well, although he lives in New York now, and he was there because he was seeing his dad, and he. Um, he said that was really nice. I enjoyed that. Would you would you two like to put it into a book? What? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, think about it. So we thought about it and then agreed we would um, try it and we would choose poems each, write as to what they meant to us and then invite other people such as um, Morag Livingstone, Ken Loach, I've got them here, Gary Young, Maxine Peake, Michael Rosen and so on each to choose a poem and say why they loved it. Mm. And so it took longer than I thought it would to put together and much harder to do than I expected because it's very hard leaving poems out. Yeah, and yeah. it's a labor of love, right? Because it's a you, labor yeah. of love. Yeah. And so what I did was um, I booked um, quite a lot of evening time and weekend time and then my desk just became like a poetry <laughs> right, yeah. And I kept phoning people up and saying, have you got the complete works of Brecht? <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, I think we have somewhere. Yeah. So I borrow all these books. So how many poems did you go through? How many are in there in the end? And there's 20 each. In so there how in many did end. you go through to get to oh, the 20? Hundreds. Hundreds. I read an awful lot of poetry. I read a lot of poetry yeah. anyway, so it was yeah. a joy. So It was I, a love and a joy doing you, it. it. It's funny that we talk about this because, um, so as you know, I come from an Iranian background. Yeah. And poetry is a big part of our culture. Absolutely. And I grew up with poetry to, to the point of frustration. My dad, whenever he wanted to tell me off, wouldn't shout, wouldn't tell me off. He'd, he'd read poetry to me as a sort of le lesson to learn. And one of the big ones he used to say, the translation's awful. It doesn't, Look, it the, doesn't translate. Favor, for the next poetry book, will you give us some advice on an Iranian poet? I, I uh, absolutely, I have, well, first of all- The my, one that your dad read to you. So my dad read my granddad's poetry. My granddad was a poet himself, published okay. poet in Iran. And he had, this, um, he had this poem that he always used to say to me. He's passed away now, both my dad and my granddad. But um, it, the, the translation doesn't work, but essentially it would be something like, every day you go to shower and you cleanse your body. 
one day I wish you'd go to shower and cleanse your soul. And he always used to say this to me, right? As a way of teaching, whenever I did something bad, he'd say, go into the shower, don't just cleanse your body, cleanse your soul and come back out. So I know how important poetry can be. And how powerful. And how powerful it can be. And I often say in politics, politics is poetry, it's not prose. Yes. And I think nothing encapsulates that better than for the many, not the few. Because poetry of course, where does that come what from? what inspires people. And my whole political message is not about the details of economics, the details of this, details mm -hmm. that. It's the spirit that moves people. Mm -hmm. And political change does not come from yeah. what MPs say to each other in the tea room. Political change comes because of the activity of people it's all, in like, our community. But it's also so powerful in terms of a communication message. And it's, we, it's me, me and the producers were sat in, in, in the sort of green room before you came in, and I was saying one of the best lessons that I've learned in politics is that the way to get people to join you in your movement, in your yeah. ideas, isn't it's not what you say, it's how you make them feel. And that's the power that I think for the many, not the few, as a slogan had, which of course comes from poetry. Yeah. And yeah. and that's the power that poetry it's has. It's inspired by Shelley. Yeah. That's where it came from. Yeah. We spent ages trying to think up something for the uh, uh, 2017 election manifesto. Yeah. How did you come to it? So Well, we were having a discussion in the office and people come up with various things. I said, no, 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 no. None of that. No, no, none of that's <laughs> going to work. I say, what we're, you've got to understand what this is about. Yeah. This is about people. It's about mobilizing people. It's about giving people hope. It's, it's not about sort of offering a, um, uh, you know, an a la carte menu of what, what's going on. It's about hope and it's about the, the holistic approach and it's about art and everything else. And that's why every one of our rallies had music and so on and so on. Mm. And they, they said, yeah, so what's your favorite poem? I said, well, it's, that's hard, but I suppose you've got to say Shelley. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, that bit about many. I said, you got it. That's the one. <laughs> That's the one. Right. Uh, we're running out of time, so I yep. do want to ask you something. Yep. Um, this is a the questionnaire that we ask all of our guests, and I'm going to get you to read okay. your poem right at the end of the, yep. the thing, if that's okay. But we ask all of our guests um, uh, a list of questionnaires. It's from a French series by Bernard Pivot called Boline de Culture, and it's a questionnaire that I love because I okay. think it gives us an insight into the person's mind. Um, and I've asked John this. I've asked Michael Crick, was a journalist who was here. I've asked him. So, um, God, he could be irritating, but he's very interesting. Uh, you know, he on the on the question of Labour Party democracy, yeah, he would right. never claim to be on the left of the party. He said yeah. it here. He said I actually identify with the right of the party, yeah. but the democratic sort of deficit in the yeah. party right now is horrible. Yeah, anyway, absolutely. on this, so question now on Bernard Pivot. First things that come to your mind: What is your favourite word? No. When people are trying to ask me to do something, I <laughs> you to keep do. saying no. Uh, have you found it hard to say no in your life? Sometimes. Yeah. What is your least favorite word? Local government language describing deficits. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You said local government. I had flashback to bins. Christ, the amount of emails I got about bins. So, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? What's something that gets your um, juices going in terms of creativity? Nature, beauty, and imaginative art and poetry. And what turns you off? Um, boring mainstream music. All oh, right. Anyone you want to name? No, no. no. Just, most of radio too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm often told that I have the music taste of an 80 year old. So um, uh, I'm not a big fan of modern music either. What's your okay? So John refused to ask, ask, answer this question, and you can also refuse to answer. What's your favorite curse word or swear word? If you have one, we're allowed to swear on that. Um, You can miss oh, this one. Damn out. you! <laughs> um, what sound or noise? Quite low key. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What sound or noise do you hate? Screech of um, metal on metal things. Yeah. Like what sound or noise do you love? Um, bird song. Bird song. Right. Yeah. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? So, if you weren't a politician, what would you like to do? Mm, probably a farmer yeah I, could, I, could, I, could, I was going to say because I know you once gave me some jam I don't know if you remember as a candidate you gave I me do, some jam um, and my mum particularly loved it what profession does she want more is that a request for more <laughs> if, or if, if there's going uh, I'll drive to North London what profession uh, would you never like to do so what's the worst profession you can think of not that there's anything wrong with it, but you can't no, see yourself you doing mean. it. I think I'd be the world's worst banker because I'd be far too, I'd be <laughs> far too generous with the poor customers. Um, and then if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, 
welcome, but can you explain what you've been doing? <laughs> right. So I do want to end it. We've been talking about the poetry book, and it's so it's, so, it's such an important part of why you're here and what you're doing. And you've written a very... I read this two nights ago. Um, you've written a, a, a really interesting poem about Calais. Yeah. You can either read that or one of your other fa well, favorites. I'd love to. Just to say, the book is dedicated to Julian Assange. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freedom. And how, how can people get it? They can get it everywhere, right? You get it everywhere. Yeah. Buy it directly from all books. Buy it online or access Peace and Justice Project website, yeah. thecorbinproject.com, and that will direct you to how to buy it. Um, I chose lots of poems, um, all of which were beautiful in their own way, some of which are very challenging. Um, very nice one from Sawana Inez de la Cruz, a Mexican woman who was... Um, who died very young. She was in uh, colonial Mexico and uh, the Catholic Church hated her because she could read and write and she um, wrote up for women's rights so she was imprisoned. And uh, she died and then the church destroyed nearly all of her papers but Octavia Paz and others have managed to recover some. Mm -hmm. So we put her poem in, You Foolish Men. Oh, nice. And it was written a yeah. hundred years before Mary Wollstonecroft came along. Oh, wow. So Snippet. I feel very, very angry about the way we treat refugees, asylum uh -huh. seekers. I've been to Calais a number of times. And when I came back from one visit to Calais, I wrote a poem. I won't read it all because um, there isn't enough time. I'll just read the first uh, uh, three verses, if I may. Cold, wet marshlands surround Calais in winter. The poem is called Calais in Winter. So I'll start again. Cold, wet marshlands surround Calais in winter. Police take tents away from the homeless. The railway station is protected with razor wire. Motorways have walls on each side. Trees are cut down to create open land. Huge rocks prevent anyone leaving a road. There is fear in Calais. It stalks every official building. It seeps into the minds of the police. It pervades all thinking. It gives imagination to cold-hearted people to confront the enemy. When they escape to the sea in flimsy boats that would be at home in a small lake, they have to be stopped, with bayonets puncturing them, clothing taken that would protect against the cold. The enemy comes on foot in lorries and buses with few clothes, no money and no food, few friends, only memories of bombardment and war, of families in jail, of crops destroyed, of empty schools, of floods and drought, of bitter travelling, in secret lorries, on mountain paths, in safe houses, of razor wires and cameras hidden in trees. Jerry Corbyn, MP for Islington North, poet now, uh, and former leader of the Labour Party. I think you began your leadership by going to a refugee um, Refugees are welcome event, um, and I can't think of anything more apt to end the interview with you reading your 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 wonderful poem about Cal refugees in Calais. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for joining us. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. That was Jeremy Corbyn speaking to me back in November. Back in June, however, former Prime Minister and my political rival, Boris Johnson, stood down as MP, LOL. I spoke to the former Deputy Prime Minister, Lord Heseltine, who did not hold back his opinions and his criticism of Boris Johnson. Really interesting. Give this a listen. Uh, Lord Heseltine, thank you so much for joining us. What do you make of this bombshell finding from the Privileges Committee? Well... It's not really much of a surprise, is it? Because it's been extensively leaked over the last three days and dramatically escalated by Boris Johnson's decision to forestall the findings by leaving Parliament. Um, and I think all of us who watch these events with a certain curiosity, shall we say, politely, uh, realized that uh, he he conducted a brilliant coup de théâtre. Uh, he, he was under deep apprehension as to what the report was going to say. It's probably worse than his worst fears. And rather than stay and take the flak, he not only attacked the committee in a wholly reprehensible way, but got out so that any penalty they could recommend um, uh, was irrelevant. Uh, the point I made about his attack on the committee was was a pack of lies. I mean, this committee is a select committee of the House of Commons with a conservative majority with the ability to recommend to Parliament 
anything that it feels appropriate. It's the Parliament who makes the decision, but Boris Johnson was not prepared to allow Parliament to have that opportunity. And so um, he, he got out from under. But the, the serious issue, of course, is that he lied to Parliament. And uh, I'm afraid this is a much bigger issue than the results of uh, the COVID inquiry, which is all wrapped up in the Select Committee report, because the really disastrous issue of our time is Brexit. And that, again, was masterminded by Boris Johnson, who told a pack of lies. Yes, and I guess this is one of the things we've been talking about, as well as the findings of the Privileges Committee. The, uh, Boris Johnson's um, relationship with the truth uh, and his propensity uh, for impropriety and lies in public office. I wonder what you think that has had, what kind of impact that's had on our politics and the strength of our political institutions. Well, I think it has done the Brexit decision, which is, uh, as I've said, it was based on a pack of lies, has done great harm to our economy. It has done great harm to our international reputation as a sane, practical, uh, well-run country. And it has done unforgivable damage to the aspirations of a younger generation who've seen themselves cut off from the center of power of the world power grouping of Europe, uh, of which we are a fundamental part. And so do you think that this is the case where whoever the next prime minister is, as well as Rishi and the the future of uh, foreign affairs, but also institutions here at home, is there a rebuilding job to be done after Boris? Because he has really wrecked our reputation around the world and with voters here at home. Well, uh, I think we must be fair to uh, the present prime minister. He has brought sanity back to the conduct of our affairs. Um, but he is a prisoner of the Brexit uh, movement within the Conservative Party. Uh, and it seems evident to me that the, uh, all the other political leaders are in the same sort of bind. But they are frightened of the uh, effect that Brexit has had, particularly in what are known as the bedwall seats north of Birmingham, um, uh, who've been told that uh, the fault of Britain's demise is all about immigrants and Brussels and uh, the the forms that people have to fill in and all these things. And uh, to turn around and try and tell people that that is, quite frankly, a a gross misrepresentation of the truth is a a huge reversal of political uh, strategy. And, And the leaders of our parties are running away from it. But they will have to find embrace it, particularly as the younger generation are frustrated by where we are and know perfectly well that any sane government would be seeking to restore our relationship with Europe. Yes, and and you spoke about you know Rishi Sunak's attempt to, to kind of distance himself from Boris and and change the perception. The reality is, even now there are many in the Conservative Party who continue to defend Boris, and much like. Donald Trump in America, although sometimes I find the links uh, difficult to make, but much like Donald Trump, it seems the Conservative Party has changed, given that it's not just Boris Johnson, he has now left the scene, but people like Nadine Doris, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, there are a lot of members of Parliament, prominent members of the Conservative Party, that are within that sort of Boris realm, and so is there difficulty in being able to recover this, given that he, you know, some of his acolytes continue to exist within the Conservative Party, and you know, you are a veteran of the Conservative Party, is this party recognisable to the one that you served under? I, that is a very difficult question for people like me. Um, I, I think the, the 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 headline answer is no, because I worked for the Conservative Party since the days of Winston Churchill and on through Eric Douglas Hume and uh, uh, Ted Heath, uh, of course, Harold Millen as well, and Margaret Thatcher and John Major, uh, and indeed uh, through to the time I spent working for David Cameron. And there is no comparison between the sort of sanity of those prime ministers and their pursuit of national self-interest uh, and the lunacy of uh, the greatest political mistake of the last half century. I mean, to believe that you can prosper by cutting off your 
biggest marketplace. I ha- how can any sane person believe that? Unless they were told that there were all sorts of opportunities uh, in the rest of the world, which patently there aren't. And every day that goes by, and it, let's be frank, it's now seven years since the Brexiteers became the principal force in government, not on the backbenches, not in the newspapers, in government. They've been there for seven years, and they've failed to give any substance to the promises on which they got elected. Yeah, and I think, look, even even Nigel Farage, who was the, the, the bastion of, of Brexit, uh, certainly before the referendum and during, has admitted on TV that Brexit hasn't worked. If you were advising Rishi Sunak, which I don't know you may be doing, what would your advice be to him to do next? Um, well, first I would say to him, don't get into the punch-up with Boris Johnson. A, you won't win because he will sling ever larger lumps of mud. And uh, unfortunately, there are uh, newspapers only too happy to carry in their headlines this sort of um, uh, low-level political abuse. Uh, And I'm afraid the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph are now still giving Boris Johnson airtime and uh, fanning the flames and as long as they keep doing that, Boris Johnson will keep providing the, the wherewithal for their headlines. So what, what I think Rishi Sunak has to do, which he started doing, is governing sanely, truthfully, and explaining to people just how difficult and lonely the British position is. Now, he has this huge problem that uh, the, the Brexit element of the Conservative Party uh, don't like that and will make very noisy interruptions at every stage, damaging to the party and to our electoral prospects. Um, But uh, Rishi Shunrik has to show the leadership and the dignity to rise above this level of internecine warfare uh, and and to show that he's trying to tackle the real problems in ways which uh, will, in the end, command respect. Okay, and and last question to you. Uh, I'm really appreciative of your time. Our last question would be, do you think, given everything that has happened around Boris Johnson, the failure of uh, of Liz Truss's premiership, do you think the Conservative Party has a chance of winning the next general election? Well, nobody is going to look at the present opinion polls and the local authority results uh, and give you a, a, a simple yes answer to that question. It is difficult to see uh, what the outcome of the next general election is. I I don't believe that the evidence is there to show that there's going to be an overall Labour majority. There may be, but at the moment, I don't think there's evidence that would frighten me if I was advising anyone on the subject. I think it's containable, uh, but equally, it will require... and and this is in the light of the very difficult economic circumstances we're facing with rising interest rates and inflation at unacceptable levels, Uh, it is very difficult to see how the Conservatives pull back to a position of power after the election. Um, So, uh, Do you think Rishi Sunak can lead them to a victory? I, I believe that in the end they will recover their prime position in British democracy. But they're in a they're in a very difficult position at the moment. Just quick follow up: Do you think Rishi Sunak is can be a viable candidate for prime minister on a ballot paper for um, the Conservative Party? Do you think he'll be an asset or perhaps a weakness? Well, I have no doubt that he is uh, an asset to the Conservative Party, and as, as I keep repeating, he has brought sanity back to the conduct of our affairs. Uh, you feel he is a man of integrity. You may not agree with everything that he says. I, I don't agree with his Brexit views. But I, I can see a hardworking man who understands the scale of the problems and is devoting himself with energy to find coherent solutions. Um, and, and against the background where he will, is, is telling people a very substantial part of the truth about our position. Okay, thank you so much. That that was Lord Heseltine, former Deputy Prime Minister under John Mayer, a Conservative peer and a veteran of the Conservative Party. Lord Heseltine, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you. It's Lord Hesseltine there. Uh, and that concludes our show. Uh, and we look back and I'll look back on our favorite interviews from 2023. I'll be back next week to analyze the biggest political stories of the week. So join me then. Uh, we're going to be getting into an exciting year, 2024, full of guests, uh, controversies, politics. So do join me. I'll see you next week. Salams.